Hello, welcome to the first episode of Things I Find Cool, asterisk that you might find cool too. I am your host, Jojo Lemieux, and since this is a one-person show, I take care of all the other stuff too. I've always had a metric ton of interests and a never-ending list of hobbies. This podcast is a way for me to catalog the many, many things that I find cool, and I guess add a hobby to that. Uh, Cards on the table, I have ADHD, and I've spent many, and I mean many, O-nights going down the rabbit holes of knowledge. I'm here to share some of those holes with you. Ah, you know what I mean. So sit back, relax, and you might find it cool too. Today's episode is about the lava lamp, or astro lamp, depending on who, where, when we talk to. That's right, that colorful, blobby, molten lamp that has worked its way into not only our hearts, but the back corner of every Spencer's across the globe. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. Is it real lava? Where did they come from? Why are you in my living room? Can I drink one? Was the de Havilland Mosquito the most compelling aircraft in World War II? Well, guess what? You are in luck, because I'll be answering all of these questions and more. Chill out and let me take you to a funkier time. That's right, I'm talking Singapore 1918. Okay, well, it's going to get funky, but first, let's talk about the man behind the lamp. Edward Craven Walker, or affectionately referred to as E.C. Walker in patent applications, was born in Singapore to British parents in 1918, where his father was a port agent. In Walker's 30s, he worked at a cigarette factory in Millbrook, Southampton, England until the war broke out and he joined the Royal Air Force. He would become a pilot assigned to doing reconnaissance missions. This isn't a World War II aircraft podcast, but when I looked into the de Havilland Mosquito, I thought it was definitely cool enough to include. The Royal Air Force de Havilland 098 Mosquito, aka the Wooden Wonder, Timber Terror, and Mossy due to its unusual for the time mostly wood construction. Uh, this thing was fast, coming in at 400 miles an hour and sleek as well. It had advanced technology and aerodynamics compared to its predecessors. It wasn't an easy aircraft to fly, and only the best pilots were allowed to fly them. Uh, The Mosquito E.C. Walker was flying was fitted with 3D cameras, and I will 100% be covering 3D cameras on an episode in the future. The de Havilland Mosquito was designed by a civilian father-son company who were committed to building faster and faster aircraft. The first prototype was built in the kitchen of Salisbury Hall, a manor near Luton, England. The lightweight wood construction made it cheap and easy to build. Wood was plentiful in the war, and craftsmen at furniture, cabin, and even piano factories began pumping out mosquitoes. A total of 7,781 mosquitoes were built, including 1,032 at the de Havilland plant in Toronto, Canada. True North, baby. The last thing I want to cover about the construction of the Mosquito was that its unique wood composite, which was a mixture of fiber and cellulose, would be a pioneer of the modern composites used in today's aerospace. The de Havilland 098 would survive many attempts to kill it in the crib, only to go on to be one of the most beloved aircraft in World War II. Back to Craven Walker. Once the war was over, Walker would continue to fly fixed-wing aircraft for the remainder of his life. 
A part of me wonders if any of them were funner to fly than the mosquito, though. This begins the next chapter of our story. Sometime in the mid-1950s, Walker and his friend went to the Queen's Head pub near Ringwood. There they saw a one-off custom egg timer contraption made by a regular, Donald Dunnett. It consisted of an egg timer and a light bulb. When the light bulb heated the wax or oily globules to a certain temperature, they rose to the top and it meant that your egg was ready. Another description I found has it as a stovetop device. A note about the queen's head. It's still around today. Unfortunately, it's not filled with groovy astral lamps, nor does it feature a bronze bust of Craven Walker. Um, but here is the top Google review. <clears throat> We came here to eat dinner, and it was quite an amazing experience. Phil was our server, and he was charismatic, funny, friendly, and helpful in every aspect. Our food was incredible as well. I ordered the 30-day aged ribeye steak, 10 ounces, and enjoyed it very much. It was cooked perfectly and tasted great. The sides were a great size, and I felt feeling full and satisfied. The bathrooms are clean and well-kept. Overall, super good time. To which the owners responded, Thank you for taking the time to leave this lovely review. We are all so pleased you enjoyed your visit with us and hope to see you all again soon. Carol and the team. Side note. I called the pub at 7am UK time hoping to leave a composed voice message. Uh, I was taken off guard and hung up when a human being answered. Um, if Carol or the team hear this, I'm sorry. Back to the lamp. About a decade after the war, E.C. Walker stumbles on the egg timer we talked about earlier. This rudimentary device wouldn't escape the mind of a creative walker. He set on a path to perfect, patent, and sell these novelty lamps. The birthplace of the Astro Lamp, as we know it today, is at 59 Kennington Road, London, S.E.1. Today, the outside of this row building is stone with bright white trim featuring a gargoyle flanking each side of the black double doors. No sign of Crestworth Limited or an astro lamp holding vigil in an apartment window. It's here that Walker would contract British inventor David George Smith to help develop the device as well as the chemical formula it would need to operate. The first prototype for the design looks like 50 shades of lava. It's an empty bottle of Gordon's Piccadilly Cocktail from the 1950s. The bottle itself is in the shape of a cocktail shaker, and the words Shaker Cocktails can be seen in raised lettering. Two metal bands go over the top in an X pattern to hold the bottle to the base. 1963. The Lava Lamp is born. Alright, quick side note, and this is going to be relevant for later somewhat. But under the pseudonym Michael Keatering, Craven actually directed a naturalist film called Traveling Light in 1959, and this was the first naturalist see nudist film to receive public release in the UK. So the lamp. The lamp, the reason we're all here. The way the lava lamp works is by using a light bulb and a bottle to create a temperature gradient. What this means is that the water in the bottle is warmer at the base and cooler near the cap. Uh, a formula from a U.S. patent in 1968 listed the formula as transparent, translucent, or opaque mix of mineral oil, paraffin wax, and carbon tetrachloride. 
the clear water or mineral oil can optionally be colored with translucent dyes. Common wax has a density much lower than that of water and would float on top at any temperature. However, carbon tetrachloride is real dense. It's denser than water and also it's non-flammable and it's miscible with wax, which means it can be mixed with wax. Um, and it is added to the wax to make its density at room temperature slightly higher than that of the water. Uh, that means that this special mixture would sink to the bottom of the container. That is, until the mixture is heated, at which point it becomes less dense than the water. Once the mixture cools, thanks to the temperature gradient, the density of the lava increases and it falls back down. Remember when I told you how it works earlier? There's one more extremely important piece. The springy ringy bit. This spring or metal coil breaks the blob's surface tension, allowing it to reincorporate into the mother blob. If you are wondering what surface tension is, let me tell you real quick. It's the force that allows water spiders to glide around on the tops of ponds. In the 1970s, lava lamps were reformulated to use a different formula without carbon tetrachloride. Carbon tetrachloride was primarily used as a dry cleaning solvent, a refrigerant, and in lava lamps. It is no longer used today for its adverse health slash environmental effects. The formula today is considered a trade secret. That is, until 1993. The following is an excerpt from an April 1997 issue of Chem Matters. In 1993, the wall of secrecy surrounding the chemical ingredients of the lava lamp was accidentally breached by a Chicago alcoholic. The 65-year-old man was taken to the emergency room at the University of Illinois Hospital because he was unresponsive and lethargic. He had a rapid pulse and respiration. Blood tests showed starvation, dehydration, excess positive ions, malfunctioning kidneys, and a blood pH of 7.32. Normal blood pH is 7.40. Although he was given intravenous fluids, his condition declined, and three days later, doctors began dialysis to clear his blood of some of the chemicals that his kidneys could not handle. At this time, his family reported that in an apparent search for alcohol, he had opened a cool lava lamp and drunk most of the liquid in the lamp and some of the solid. His doctors needed to know immediately the chemical composition of the lava lamp. The lamp was sent to Heinz Veterinary Administration Hospital where chemist Ralston Reed promptly analyzed the remaining material by grass chromatography mass spectrophotometry. The lava lamp was found to contain water, 38% by mass, chlorinated paraffin, 36% by mass, low molecular weight polyethylene glycol, 13%, kerosene, 7%, and microcrystalline wax, 6%. A similar analysis of the man's blood saved from the day he was admitted to the hospital showed some of the same materials. Finally, the doctors knew how to treat the man and he made a gradual recovery, which was complicated by alcohol withdrawal. After three months of hospitalization, the man was sent home. Although his kidneys did not fully recover, toxicologist Timothy Erickson and the other physicians who treated this man believed that the most prominent toxic effect was the kidney damage caused by the low molecular weight polyethylene glycol, 200 Daltons. This chemical can damage the kidneys, even though high molecular weight polyethylene glycol, 
3500 Daltons is safe and is used therapeutically to flush certain toxins from the intestines. After this incident, the manufacturer changed the design of the lamp so it contains less toxic ingredients and the bottle is now harder to open. D. Period Robson. This tells us that at the time the composition was as follows. Water and polyethylene glycol for the liquid, and for the wax, you had paraffin from kerosene and chlorinated paraffin. The formula has apparently changed, and the best homebrew recipes I saw calls for sodium lauryl sulfate, SLS is used in toothpastes, engine degreasers, shampoos, and even a potential shark repellent. Now that we've gone through the who, how, and where, let's really get into the what. The real star of the show isn't brightly colored paraffin wax and mineral oil. The star is the magic of the motion captured within its glass walls, the complex dance taking place on the stage, a sea of molten liquid spheres bouncing around, interacting with each other without losing themselves along the way. Walker said of his creation, It starts from nothing, grows possibly a little bit feminine, then a little bit masculine, then breaks up and has children. It's a sexy thing. If we want to get quickly overly poetic about it, there's a beautiful example of our lives in the lava lamp. The sphere is born at the bottom to a molten mother, where it begins its journey going higher and higher, politely molding around the spheres on their own journey down, until it finally reaches the apex. Once it reaches the apex, there's a brief moment of calm stillness before it begins its descent back into its molten mother. Once at the bottom, it is reincorporated into the liminal molten blob of potential waiting to make its journey up the apex once more. There is also 100% a DVD logo bouncing around your parents' old 300-pound TV angle to it as well. Also drugs. Alright, so the year is 1963 and E.C. Walker has launched Astrolamp, manufactured by his own company, Crestworth Limited, now called Mathmos. One of his original pitches was, if you buy my lamp, you won't need drugs. <laughs> this statement is funny when you consider that lava lamps have long been a symbol of hippie, psychedelic culture. My first memory of a lava lamp is seeing them sandwiched on the shelf between posters of an alien smoking a doobie wearing a beanie flashing the peace sign, dragon-shaped incense burners, and the poor quality novelty sex toys at Spencer's Gifts. Sorry, Walker, you missed the mark on that one. He would go on to say, I think it will always be popular. It's like the cycle of life. It grows, breaks up, falls down, and then starts all over again. Here's the life cycle of the Astro Lava Lamps. The Astro Lamp manufactured by Crestworth Limited was first carried at UK high-end department store Selfridges. They were a runway hit through the 60s and into the 70s. At its peak, the factory in Poole, Dorset was pumping out 7 million lamps a year. Pool is where Mathmos lamps are still made. British Invasion. Why have I been saying Astro Lava Lamp? The question no one has been asking is about to be answered. In 1965, the American rights were purchased by two business partners. They would pay Crestworth an annual license fee with consultation fees, which involved Crestworth personnel visiting to verify the production procedures and also discuss new ideas for products. They opted to name the product the Lava Light Lamp, the company bounced around, briefly owned by some VC funds, and is now owned by Shiling. I am currently looking at my Lapalant Grande. It is a beast standing over 2 feet tall and 20 pounds that I proudly display as the centerpiece of my living room. 
If anyone from Shiling is listening, thanks for bringing it back. All of this to say that lava lamps and astro lamps are the same in name. Back to the lamp's life cycle. Rising, dancing, twisting, fascinating fluidity. The astro lava lamps were producing 7 million lamps a year. Craven Walker would go on to recall getting a phone call that Ringo Starr had purchased one. They knew they had made it. By the end of the 1980s, Cressworth had dialed production down to around 100 lamps a month. Enter Cressida Granger and David Mully. In 1989, Cressida Granger and David Mully were two young antique dealers. Cressida came across some lava lamps in a dusty old box. Even though they were very unfashionable at the time, Cressida loved them. Cressida began selling the lamps at Camden Market and saw the demand for these retro lamps. Cressida Granger saw this as an opportunity and she contacted the Cressworth factory to buy the formula to make their own lamps. Craven Walker offered them the company instead. I found a few different versions of the story. The most sensational one is that Cressida and David finalized the deal by tracking down Craven Walker at a nudist naturalist colony. The more granular one is retold by Cressida in a Management Today article is that Craven Walker hated lawyers and made up the deal on the back of an envelope. Uh, They would take on 20% ownership and run the company for a year, and if they could make it profitable, they would be given 80% total. Three years later, the company was theirs, and they rebranded from Cressworth Limited to Mathmos, a reference to the movie Barbarella. The popularity of the lamps rose through the 1990s, and they became the best-selling product in shop's lighting department. Austin Powers was bringing Groovy back, baby. Kids that became grown kids had nostalgia, and new kids like myself thought they were super rad. Things were going very well until 1999 when cheaper Chinese copies of the lamps manufactured in pools started popping up. In 2000, Mathmos had lost 50% of their turnover. Cressida insisted on keeping manufacturing in Britain, which means that they would never be able to compete on price. Lavalite moved production from Chicago to China some time ago. Walker continued to be involved as a consultant with Mathmos until he passed away August 15, 2000 in Hampshire. Today, Mathmos seems to be doing well and has some truly beautiful products. There is a range of lamps that are truly eye-catching. I particularly like the candle-powered models. Here we are, 3,000 words later, and we've made it to the end of the story. I love lava lamps. My mom gave me my first lava lamp when I was 8 years old. Lava light with blue liquid and yellow wax. I can't count how many nights I stared at the motion of the lamp to help me fall asleep. The choreographed chaos, a great metaphor for my mind. I have to thank www.flowoflava.com. Their collection of information is one of the best resources out there if you want to learn more about the history of these beautiful lamps. Thank you for sticking through to the end. This is the first episode in a long series. I appreciate you, and don't stop asking why. And if you're still listening, congratulations! I've included a bonus fact. Cloudflare, a web services provider, actually uses lava lamps as a form of cryptography. Computers aren't great at true randomness, and true randomness is a very important part of generating cryptographic keys. Here's an excerpt from Cloudflare's website. To collect this data, Cloudflare has arranged about 100 lava lamps on one of the walls in the lobby of the Cloudflare headquarters and mounted a camera pointing at the lamps. The camera takes photos of the lamps at regular intervals and sends the images to Cloudflare servers. 
All digital images are really stored by computers as a series of numbers, with each pixel having its own numerical value. And so each image becomes a string of totally random numbers that the Cloudflare servers can then use as starting point for creating secure encryption keys. Pretty cool, huh? See you next time.